Your experience of the family court was with a different uh, partner to the man who was convicted of assaulting you in a criminal case. But it means you have experience of both systems. How did you feel you were treated by both systems? Well, in the criminal court, I was dealt with as a victim uh, and a witness, and I had special measures. However, in family court, I was dealt with as if I was a criminal, as if I had done something wrong, and I was responsible for the violence that I'd received. So extremely different experiences, mm -hmm. and actually, I, not one I would like to repeat. Yeah. Um, you have given us some photographs which you have said that we can show on television, which mm -hmm. show the injuries you sustained yeah. in the assault which took place on you. They are really upsetting, so if there are young children around, you may not want them to watch. Um, you were recovering from an attack mm -hmm. by a man called Jason Smith when you were actually asked to attend a family court hearing involving yeah. a previous ex. Had there been joint cases joint courts, then that probably wouldn't have happened. Absolutely wouldn't have happened mm. um, because that was one of the things I even raised just, when I... I mean, I'm just sorry, Zoe, I'm sorry to pause you, but I'm just looking at your injuries. Oh, my God. How did you survive? I'm lucky to be here. Really? Yeah. Goodness me. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. If there were parallel cases or joint courts then you wouldn't have been asked to attend a family court hearing while you were in hospital recovering from those injuries. Oh, absolutely. And I had to discharge myself from hospital and I was still bruised. And I do think that, that when I appeared in family court, it wasn't appropriate. I was still, I still was recovering from injuries. And no, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I spent £14,000 going through that process, which I know many victims don't have the means to do that or the fight to even go through mm. family court. It's horrific horrific experience worse than the attack and i actually always say that do you mean that yes i absolutely mean that i oh. would i would rather deal with that side of things again because the criminal justice system was different completely different i had a domestic um a, abuse campaign advocate with me mm. in court um but family court no nothing i had no support whatsoever Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Where we left off, Zoe was in the family court. Having just fought for her life, she's now fighting for custody of her daughter because of what Smith did to her. You really couldn't make this up. Now, as before, listener discretion is advised. This episode will make you feel incredibly angry. And so here's part three of my important conversation with the incredible warrior, Zoe Dromfield. You know, I, and I don't know how to act in the courtroom, what I'm meant to say, how am I meant to say that I'm not accepting this? She got up and walked out. I then spent the next four months fighting when I should have been recovering, fighting for my daughter, I spent £14,000 in legal fees to get residency back. I do have full residency of her now, luckily that they saw sense. But there was a there's always a double edged sword, I think, with me because Jason got ten years plus four on licence for his attack on me and he got six months for the criminal damage. And then there was a further six months for the witness intimidation, which I haven't talked about yet. Um but then so I felt like, in terms of other women, that that was a quite a lengthy sentence. And I know most people won't agree with me, but actually because I'd seen so many and read so many things about people having similar or worse injuries to me, and they were these men were just getting away with it, I, felt, I thought that I felt like one of the lucky ones. And then, you know, being able to get Sophia back, I felt lucky because I knew lots of women that had lost their children to their abuser. And then had to deal with that as well. And how I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to deal with that. How could you lose your child when you're, you're a victim of a crime? You know, and I'd, I'd say it like if I crossed over the road and got hit by a bus, can I no longer then cross, cross a road because I can't be trusted? I mean, it's ridiculous. And I was even cross-examined by Sophia's dad. I mean, how can that even be a thing? 
It's, it's crazy, so egregious. Like a... It's egregious on every level. With you were victimized by Jason Smith, and then you were punished. Yeah. You were the one that was being punished. Your daughter being taken away, and family courts are draconian. They're yeah. outrageous in the way that they operate in secrecy and the way that they treat women in particular. We've talked about it a little bit on Real Crime Profile uh, because it's come up quite a lot. But it, your case just really is one where people think that it just couldn't happen. But it, mm. it did. And you fought for your daughter. And thank goodness you then got custody of her. But at the same time, you've got a criminal court case that's ongoing because Smith was arrested. And you're expected to be in both courts on the same day at the same time with mm -hmm. no discussion between the family court or the criminal justice system. And yeah. you're the one that's getting it from both sides of lawyers. And again, it's you're the one that's caught in the middle of everything when you're the victim. That, that just smacks of no victim care, no empathy, no compassion, mm -hmm. no human part yeah. to the process that people are just production line and yeah. bearing in mind your trauma and how physically you were physically still trying to recover as well as psychologically and emotionally and you're having to fight in both systems I mean it's just so egregious Zoe and you talk about it so calmly mm. because you've had to but there are so many lessons to be learned here for professionals about how we work with victims and survivors and even in the criminal justice system, I just want to make one point about you talked about his sentence. Well, yes, Richard Atkins, the QC, said that Smith was a violent bully who wouldn't take no for an answer. And he gave him 10 years plus four on license. And he felt that was an appropriate sentence. Well, Lee Egan, who was defending Jason Smith at the time, said in response that his client didn't accept guilt and he said it was an isolated incident and not premeditated, which was a lie. And that, again, it really makes me angry that there are lawyers in court lying, mm. whether it's conscious or whether it's unconscious, but Lee Egan should have done his homework to know about Smith because it wasn't the first time mm. with you or on other women, because we know, you mentioned the police officer, let's call her victim three. We know there were multiple other women who came forward when there was media on this case, but he had actually been in prison. He'd been convicted, mm -hmm. and you mentioned it, for what was harassment on her, which was a three-month sentence. Well, actually, she had alleged and reported Smith for rape, assault, burglary, false imprisonment, amongst other things, and it was deemed by prosecutors appropriate to charge him with harassment. And then he went to prison for three months. So it was not an isolated incident. And isolated incidents triggers me because too often what's represented is this is just a one-time event. This is rare. This person hasn't done this before. Therefore, they're of previous good character. That was not the case with Jason Smith. And no, he was a very dangerous man who had never been dealt with appropriately. And the culmination of his behaviour being green lit was unfortunately you experienced the culmination of, of all of that. And to hear that said in court is just unacceptable. And I can understand why you felt his sentence was appropriate. But for me, given the totality of his behaviour, given the amount of women that he has abused... That's exactly how offenders get green lit. And it's just not good enough. It's not acceptable. And that's what we've been campaigning together to create change. Yeah. Yeah. I've said a lot there. And, you know, it's highly, well, it's about time that men were held to account for their behavior. And I think it does nobody any favors other than the perpetrators to keep masking their abuse. So to the prosecutors, to the defence councils, to everyone working in the system, you have to think very carefully about what somebody's behaviour is, what it represents, and the, the safety and risk to the victim and to their children. And I think too often in the criminal justice system, the family court system, it becomes about process and it's not about the person, their safety at the end of it. And I'm sorry that you experienced what you did. I don't feel that 
this sentence was appropriate. I think he should have been sentenced far higher. And of course, there are legalities wrapped, bound up in that. But even when he was in prison, he was still contacting you. And let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned the witness intimidation, but he was contacting you. And say, say what happened. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So while he was on remand um, waiting for the court case, I then had, I got a couple of calls from him from a withheld number. And um, it was him. Now, first of all, it was like, hey, baby, you fell. I was trying to help you. And when I was just like, you tried to kill me, Jason, you tried to kill me. When he realized that I wasn't going to fall for that narrative that I fell. He then switched to, well, look, I'm in here with these people that are not very nice. I could send somebody to come and have a word with you. And when I reported that to the police, they said they advised me not to answer the phone. I said, but that's witness intimidation, isn't it? So, well, how are you going to get him for witness intimidation if I don't answer the phone? Or can you not tap my phone? Can you not do something? So he made a couple of calls and then every time... They said they gave me the number of the prison that he was in and said, call the prison, let them know. They'll search his cell every time you get a call. So I made two statements. I only spoke to him twice. And then every time I kept getting all these withheld numbers and I just logged all of them. And then this one time he rang off a, a mobile without withholding the number. And so I rang the DC and said, I've got the number. He's rang. He's just rang me again. Because um, he'd said, you know, if I go to court, then you know, something will happen to my house. And that was the real him. I don't think I'd seen the real him until that point because it's always been the charming baby. I'm this, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'll be this, I'll be that. I'll be when his mask well and truly slipped on those calls where I said, you know, you tried to kill me. And he said, quite frankly, if I wanted you dead, Zoe, you'd be dead. And I just was like, wow. And then at that point, I'd sent, so the police interviewed him. And that he said, he came up with an elaborate story that I'd sent somebody to drive by the prison so I could stitch him up and pretend that he was witness intimidating me. However, he'd actually rang one of his or two, one or two of his family members off that same mobile number. So that story obviously didn't stand up. So that that's how we got him for the witness intimidation. Um, but at that time, when he was making those calls, I text his dad two text messages and one message to his sister on Facebook and said, can you tell your son, your brother to stop contacting me? He's threatening me from prison. I want nothing to do with him. They contacted the police and then they, the police rang me one Friday evening around nine o'clock, bearing in mind what I've just been through, bearing in mind I'm at home with the children. And the police officer said to me on the phone, oh, uh, Miss Dronfield, yes, you've been in contact with uh, the Smith family. I have to warn you that you could be up on a harassment charge. We need you to come in for a voluntary interview. I said, pardon me? You do realise that I'm a victim of domestic abuse. He said, oh, you're not going to pull that one, are you? I said, okay, what's your collar number, please? And this is what I've done all the way along, is 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 to call it out when it's not right. Because you know what? It was a frigging wake-up call, and I won't ever go back to that person with no boundaries again. And so from that moment on, it was like, no, 
You know, I'm not going to accept that you say to me that, oh, you're not going to pull that one. You have, have you even checked the file to see who you're talking to? What's actually happened to me? I was nearly murdered and I've sent three messages. And so I was told, and I said, well, if it's voluntary, what happens if I don't go? And they said, well, you could be arrested. Right. And that's how you and I got in contact, Laura. And I spoke to you about behaviour of Smith. And the stalking, which is something that I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have called it that. I wouldn't have recognised it as that. And the police never even recognised it even as harassment, even when he was doing all of that calling to me. And I remember something that you said to me, actually, because the knives were actually in the bedroom when, when the attack happened. And the police said to me, how were the knives and how did the knives come to be in the bedroom? And I said, well, a couple of months before, there was when I got back from work, Jason said, there's been damage to the back door. Somebody's tried to break in. I think we need to keep knives in the loft because we're just up there and we're vulnerable. We're like sitting ducks. We need knives. And those knives that he attacked me with were under my bed, in a drawer under my bed. And I remember telling you about the door, that door and you said, do you think that he maybe did that to get the knives upstairs and, and and you know and it's hindsight again isn't it I do believe that I think that all of the things were all this was all a game to him and I think that realisation actually validated me and made me a stronger victim because I was educated and had the clarity of mind to think there is no way I've done anything wrong here. I am not even going to question myself ever again on this situation because he is a bloody maniac, you know. And and then, you know, after that happening with the witness intimidation, they'd asked me to go in for the voluntary um, interview. And you said, because I, I was just going to turn up and, and just go and have this interview. And you said, no, don't don't go and represent it. Naively, I was just going to go along and say, you know, yeah, so what? <laughs> I sent three messages saying, but I could have just walked into an ambush. Um, well, you would have done. I mean, undoubtedly, and I still remember that conversation, when you're innocent, you go along in good faith and you just think it will all get worked out. It's a miscommunication, whatever it is. But that's not what we see when women are on the other end of it. Mm. My professional experience, you know, and that's all I can rely on is the thousands of cases that I've seen. Well, you call the police, you're telling them Jason Smith's a problem. They do very little. Mm. He gets his dad to call the police. Even though he's in prison, you were clearly a victim and suddenly they're trying to strong arm you and bring you in for a voluntary interview. And yes, you may well have been arrested at that point. But isn't it interesting that they can act on his behalf against you, but not the other way around. Yeah. And so I'm glad I did get you a lawyer because I would not have wanted you going in, particularly, you know, when people haven't had experience of the criminal justice system, you think things will work out okay because yeah. you haven't done anything wrong. But unfortunately for women, it doesn't always work that way. And why I asked you the question about the knives was because in many cases I have seen a, a perpetrator in when there's coercive control and when there's been abuse, try and create some kind of threat that pushes the victim closer to them. And then mm. they may be bringing a, a weapon because there's fear of an intrusion or whatever it might be. And then they bring that weapon into the bedroom under a legitimate reason, but then the weapon's there. And then later on it's used on the victim. So I have mm. seen that many times before play out and cases are running through my head even, even as we're talking about it. Um, and I believe that's what happened with Deborah Newell, too, when John uh, orchestrated a, a woman, I believe, to put drugs in the house and to break in, to shower, to use Deborah's house, to put her in fear. And he was the one that then came to the rescue. But I believe that that was a planned situation so that John could then move in. And then cameras went up and Deborah's now feeling more secure because John's around. And so he's kind of created this saviour 
uh, situation. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a stretch to think like that. And it did really bother me that there were knives in, in the bedroom. And the police response has bothered me continuously throughout your case of how what and why they respond to a call out from his dad when I could completely understand why you would speak to his dad and say, please get him to stop calling me. Of course, you don't want text messages from him. You've spoken to him and you've asked him and he's trying to pretend that he didn't try and kill you. He's rationalizing it down to you fell. He's gaslighting you again. And then you call it out and then Jason turns nasty but then his dad does too. Well, his mum and dad have been enabling him all all the way along. But yeah. you could have been on the, the wrong end of that. And unfortunately, that's what people think. The criminal justice system, if you're innocent, will work in the right way for you. But for women, there's a gender bias. There's sexism. There's misogyny. I never would have said that 25 years ago. But then I didn't have the experience of working the cases 25 years ago. And in in one sense, you know, it worked out in that... He, you weren't arrested. You were protected. The the right things happened, but you're still fighting now, and that's, you know, that's the unbelievable part that you haven't stopped fighting since Jason Smith came into your life, and that was what 2013, and you're still fighting now in 2021. Yeah, because he even continued on from that because then he wrote to you from prison. He wrote to. Uh, a he wrote to a number of journalists. He even got a article changed that said he was a stalker, changed to violent offender because he'd rather be called a violent offender than a stalker, which is crazy. But his behaviour was stalking. And, you know, from having looked at it extensively, what he was doing was stalking. And you can stalk someone in a relationship too. It's just that people don't give it that label. So, yes, but he wasn't convicted as a stalker. But we know, you know, out of everybody who's charged, so the 10,000 prosecutions that happened in 2017 and 18, only 25% were charged and there was a 10% decrease last year. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing less and less people go to prison for stalking. So someone might rightly say, but I've never been convicted for stalking mm -hmm. or as a stalker and no one wants stalking on their charge sheet. But he was convicted for harassment of victim three. And I believe there should have been a stalking charge in your case too. If the stalking law, you know, was enacted, which it was at the time, he continued his behaviour by writing to me, writing to Jeremy, writing to other people, and I made the case to the police. And I still feel that, that there are clear points of failure there, and I know you do too. But it's unacceptable to be in a position where you're having to keep fighting and the campaign has been a big part of our work together for serial perpetrators of domestic abuse and stalkers to be on a register, which, by the way, it looks like Queensland are going to adopt. And we've been pushing hard wow. in England and Wales for that to happen. I've been working all across the world for that to happen, but spent a lot of time in England and Wales, obviously, with our campaign and the Domestic Abuse Act. And we still haven't quite got what we want. Um, but we will continue because we know the murders are continuing, unfortunately, and women shouldn't be in this position, as you've described. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. 
So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We already have registered nurses, violent and sexual offenders register. What we're asking for that is that database to be expanded to include serial stalkers and domestic abusers so that in cases like Zoe's and Alice, there can be more joined up thinking between police forces to connect the dots between all these histories and all these incidences of abuse and stalking. And you've also got a GoFundMe campaign, haven't you, Zoe? To yeah. You're challenging the decisions that have been made by police. Yeah, so he's also, so just a step back before that um, case that we've brought is that he appealed in 2016. So the attack was 2014. He was, um, the sentencing was 2015. He appealed in 2016. He appealed again in 2017. He was then in put I, I had two police officers arrive at my house one afternoon, one weekend afternoon and said, we're thinking of putting Jason Smith in an open conditions. I said, well, no, I don't agree with it. They said they didn't, ta- they, they told me that it, they were thinking about doing this. I then wrote to the Justice Minister, Robert Buckland, and said, you know, what's going on? And he sent me a chronological letter which lay out what happened and he'd actually already been moved into open conditions with the potential to have day release. So I was already potentially in danger. So we then, my, you know, I'm lucky that I've got people that can help me in terms of legal things. And we put together the judicial review and said, well, we're going to, we're going to um, challenge this with the judicial review. And they moved him immediately back to closed conditions so that that didn't happen. And so now the case that is currently live is, is the failure of police to properly investigate the other victims of Smith. And so, yeah, we've got a GoFundMe page because they, as a victim, you don't get legal aid, you don't get support financially with legal funding. And in order for me to get this into the court, the courts wanted £10,000 off both myself and victim three and 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 then there's legal fees ongoing legal fees i'm lucky that i've got a barrister and a a solicitor to work on the case but you know i i haven't stopped since since that attack or since he unraveled actually in the relationship my life has been one constant battle in one way or another with something which is unacceptable. That, that's what really strikes me. And yes, to go back to the parole issues, he never accepted responsibility. And we know that. And the letters that he sent me showed he didn't accept responsibility. And then he goes up for parole. He's moved to an open prison. I still remember that call that we had where you told me two police officers arrived at your door. It was a Friday afternoon. So just for the, in time for the weekend. And they're telling you that they're debating it and you had to write a statement. And yes, then they'd already allowed him. Yeah, they'd already moved him, which we found out after. But they actually said the police officers that arrived, one of them was his offender manager. And he'd actually said that he definitely has no remorse. So he just totally doesn't admit it. He doesn't. There's no remorse because he doesn't even acknowledge that he did what he did. And then the other officer said... 
you know, we do have to look to rehabilitate. We can't just keep everybody in prison forever. So there will come a point where he's got to come out. And it might be that it takes another victim. And it's like these conversations that I have with the police is always, this is what I can't get my head around because I just think most victims probably wouldn't pick up on those nuances because they're so traumatized what's happened. They're just dealing with the trauma, but it infuriates me with the language that they use. Like it might take another victim. How dare you come into my house and tell me a, a lie and say that he's, we're thinking of moving him to open conditions. But then to be, say, it, you know, sometimes in these situations, it might take for him to be, for him to get a decent sentence is for him to take another victim. Oh, well, that makes me feel very safe. And then they're suggesting that I have a panic alarm. Well, if I'm, if you're suggesting that I have a panic alarm, why are you releasing him? Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, and it's unconscionable, actually. Every point... It's not just unconscionable, it's untrue. So firstly, the fact that he shows no remorse. Well, he why is he being allowed out only a third into his sentence? Part of the parole conditions or even being moved to an open prison is that you have to accept responsibility and show remorse. So that's in direct contradiction. Who did the risk assessment? Who did, who, who, who has actually been sat around the table in terms of risk management? This is where the mapper system fells down or falls down, I should say, because you haven't got experts on domestic abuse and stalking. My question to Robert Buckland was, were the 13 other women taken into consideration when that probation officer, prison officer, whoever it was, did the risk assessment? Because it's set very similar to the Warboys case mm-hmm. where he thought that he was going to get paroled. And whoever did the risk assessment, it was flawed because they didn't look at the totality of everything that's happening. And that's what's going wrong at MAPA, where it's just about the perpetrator's right to freedom versus the victim's right to safety. So it's factually inaccurate. And they should never be saying to a victim, it may well take another victim when there's plenty of grounds to keep him in. There is no reason for him to be released early. No reason at all, not a third into his sentence when he has accepted no responsibility mm-hmm. and he's shown no remorse. He should not be in an open prison situation being rewarded for that behaviour, mm-hmm. putting you and your children at risk. And that I found that very egregious and I thought it was interesting that Robert Buckland, Lord Chancellor, who voted down Amendment 42 mm-hmm. in the DA yeah. The, the Domestic Abuse Act. I do think it was interesting that he laid out the, in the letter that he had been released. And as soon as we remonstrated and put in for a judicial review, Smith was moved very quickly back to a Category B prison. Mm-hmm. But who's making these decisions? Mm-hmm. That is the question. And I wanted to see the full risk assessment. I wanted to see their decision-making process because I'm fairly confident it wouldn't have involved your safety, your protection, and it wouldn't have involved all the other women who we believe that he's abused. Because, of course, when you went public, 13 women came forward. We're not talking about one or two, 13. And since then, another, well, it's now 18, isn't it? We're talking about a large number of women who've experienced his behaviour to some degree or another. Yeah. And I just don't think it's good enough that you should have to fight the system along with everything else. You know, even even when those two police officers arrived, my partner now, he said, don't go in that room on your own, I'm sitting with you. And he witnessed, and I said, "I'm." he's coming in, you're not speaking to me on my own about anything. I want a witness with me. And so he witnessed them saying that he was potentially going to open conditions when he had already been moved. Well, that is a disservice to everybody, in fact. You know, for your safety... That's just so egregious that you could be walking down the street and then you yeah. bump into him or your children. Or my children, yeah. Yeah, that's unacceptable. And there needs to be a direct challenge there. The the good thing is about the accountability. And, you know, and I would say to anybody who's listening to this that you do have rights. You might not feel that you do, but just as Zoe said, have someone with you, have an advocate, call up Paladin, speak to yeah. somebody who's a professional to advocate on your behalf. If you're not comfortable going to that meeting, don't go to it. Ask them if they're happy. If you put a a, a recorder on, Mm. record it on your phone. 
ask them to write down those decisions on on paper so that you can see it. But I would definitely recommend, as Zoe did, have someone with you. And that's the strength of Paladin and being an advocate. The work that I do is having someone who understands the system, whether it's victim support, but really you want someone who's trained to understand stalking and coercive control and domestic abuse. But offenders should not be being released to an open prison a third into their sentence when they've accepted no responsibility. And your case, Zoe, it is one of the worst cases in the sense that you almost were killed. Mm-hmm. There's no ifs or buts about that. That's what happened. Yeah. But his distorted narrative is clearly what professionals are buying into. Mm. And I get very incensed about that when professionals yeah. buy into the self-report of a perpetrator and particularly one who's narcissistic, who's deceptive, who's manipulative, who enjoys conning people, and who's possibly psychopathic, which is the reason when you're describing Smith, I'm ticking off a lot of the 20 traits on the psychopathy checklist. And when you have a psychopath in front of you, you cannot believe anything that they are saying. You have to check and cross corroborate everything, every detail. And I would probably, you know, bet my house on it that the professionals who've interacted with him have not done their job and not done their due diligence. They have been charmed by him, I'm sure. Absolutely. Manipulated. So the fight goes on. Yeah. And I I have been contacted by a couple of cellmates, actually, that he's spent time in prison and they've apologised to me. They've messaged me on social media and said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I shared a cell with Jason Smith and he never told me that that's why he was in prison. And I'm sorry that you've been through that. And and so even now to this day, you know, there's he's still, there's no remorse. There's no ad- admission of guilt, nothing. Which is a clear sign of psychopathy. No remorse, no responsibility taking, no empathy. All the things that are the kernels of psychopathy and the the no remorse, the no empathy, the no responsibility taking are the uh, biggest red flags or the biggest indicators of psychopathy. And we know that he was and is a very dangerous person. And that's why victim three, who was a police officer, made it clear to police when she made her allegations that she believed he would kill someone and not not just someone, kill a woman. And Mm -hmm. look at the foreshadowing. That's what she said a number of years before you met Smith. And then that's exactly what happened. Why did they not believe a female police officer who had experienced his abuse? Why was she disregarded? And we don't know the answers to that. But I'm so sick and tired of women not being believed and being dismissed and then other women getting harmed. There has to be accountability in decision-making. And that's why I'm pleased that you're telling your story so that people can understand the detail, the nuanced detail, but just how hard you have to bloody fight just to survive. Exactly. And constantly fight, you know, oh, what now? You know, (laughs) every year, every year since the attack, there has been something. It's just... it. It's beyond not okay. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, and that's why I say I think I'm one of the lucky ones because, A, I have a good network around me. I have a good support network around me now. B, I have the professional understanding to call out when something is incorrect, whereas lots of women who have not been in corporate world or, or inside large institutions would have had the confidence to even say, this is wrong and I'm challenging it. Whereas I challenge stuff daily, you know, and so, and being able to articulate it in a way that professionals will listen to what I'm saying. I mean, I've done the talks at the the conference with you, Laura, and, and I remember doing the conference with the police crime commissioners and we had every crime commissioner bar two forces there for Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service conference. And there was a queue to speak to me at the end and they all apologized for what happened to me and it's that's not good enough (laughs) it's no good a police crime commissioner apologizing do something about it need action not words yeah and i think that's a really important point that anyone can say they're sorry yeah 
But where's the change behaviour? And so we are looking to police and crime commissioners in England and Wales to fund independent stalking advocacy caseworkers, but also to fund work holding perpetrators to account, particularly Mm -hmm. around stalking. You know, this is an area that is really not understood, not looked at. And so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm always glad when professionals say things like that to you, but how does that change things for the future, for the next victim? And yeah. police and crime commissioners now do have the power and the autonomy to be able to make changes and hold chief constables to account. And they should be asking what they're doing around violence, male violence against women and girls, particularly in the areas of domestic abuse and stalking, and particularly with serial perpetrators. Because Smith was allowed Mm -hmm. to behave the way he did. Smith has gotten away with it so many times that what happened to you, if he had been dealt with properly, even if we take victim three at that point, then perhaps, 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 you know, what happened to you might not have happened. But he's never been properly held to account. And a three-month prison sentence is not holding someone to account on a charge of harassment when he was actually accused of rape, assault, burglary, false imprisonment and very serious offences. Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to see accountability because the apology is trite, quite frankly, when we keep hearing the same mistakes being made over yeah. and over again. And it's women who children and children who pay with their lives. And you put it very diplomatically saying it's not good enough. Well, it's not bloody good enough. And people mm. need to be held to account with their decision making. So I will put the GoFundMe link in the show notes so that people can help by contributing to that. As you said, you have to pay all your legal fees Mm -hmm. to mount this challenge and and quite right that you're doing so. And is there any other way that my listeners can help, Zoe? Well, we have the the petition for the Serial Domestic Abusers and Stalkers Register, which is the campaign around having them included on the Visor, the Violent and Sex Offenders Register. So signing the petition and writing to MPs, you know, and I just think having and keeping the constant, constant, let's keep talking about it because, you know, we were so happy that the, that they agree, you know, we got the, we got the bill through the House of Lords for, the register, which we've been, you know, I've been campaigning for with you, Laura, for seven years. You've obviously written all the papers decades now. I mean, it's just, it beggars belief when, you know, how many signatures does the petition have now? I mean, it's like multiple of hundreds of thousands of signatures. Everybody I speak to thinks it's common sense. The government still haven't uh, agreed to properly deliver what we've asked women will still die and we will have to keep a close eye on that and we need to keep on calling it out every time that happens because the statistic of two women a week dying being killed being murdered has never changed in the entire time that I've worked tirelessly (laughs) campaigning and yourself your entire career I mean it's just it's never changed it just gets worse. It's fact. actually worse than that. Yeah. It's, it, the number is worse. And it's one woman every three days who's killed by a man, one every four days who's killed by a male ex-partner or current partner. So the statistics are very worrying because that doesn't also include suicides. Suicides, yeah. Which we know is a, a, a big error. It doesn't include hidden homicides, so cases yeah. that might be written off as something else. And... Yes, we didn't get exactly what we wanted, which was automatic inclusion Mm. of serial perpetrators. And that's something that we are still going to be pushing for, automatic inclusion of serial domestic abusers and stalkers, even if they're not convicted, i.e. they may have two plus women who have made allegations against them. They may be convicted or they might not that those individuals would then go on to the Violent and Sexual Offenders Register. That happens, by the way, with sex offenders all the time, and it happens with terrorists. So this isn't about creating a new model. It's about inclusion. And we know that it's about resources. If they had agreed to do it, it's the difference of 330 offenders being managed currently under Category 3 versus 50,000, which should be being managed under Category 3. So it comes back to the R word of resources, but one murder mm. costs 3.2 million to investigate. 
Domestic abuse costs 66 billion to society every year. That doesn't include the trials. That doesn't include all the reviews that happen around a murder. You might have 11 reviews around one murder for the less so-called lessons to be learned. So actually, it's a false economy not to do this. But the government have pledged they will update the statutory guidance. And we have said all along, what difference will guidance make? It's just guidance. Yeah. Now, that's not going to create change of behaviour. But what Baroness Jamroyal and I have agreed to do and what I've started doing is flagging when murders have happened, we're going to be writing to the ministers. So my ask to listeners is please on social, if you could let us know if there's a murder that's reported in your area or that you see one on social media, please can you tag certainly myself into it and Zoe, and I want to be able to keep a, a, a very clear account mm -hmm. of women who are being killed. And particularly, we haven't seen this new statutory guidance that will come in yet. And the new database won't go live until next year. So how many women will be harmed and killed by then? And what's the message to the perpetrators? Yeah. That not happening. There's a very clear message to them. And although we did get some good wins and I've talked about them in my special report, the one that would really make the biggest difference is the one that we didn't get, where it would mean automatic inclusion of questioning perpetrators about their histories rather than questioning mm. women. And, and that's the cultural shift we're trying to create, the, the big shift that we ask about his behaviour, not about hers. So we don't ask her, why didn't she leave? Or, but why did you go and meet him, Zoe? But why did you... We're not interested in that. We're asked, we're interested in Smith's behaviour. Why didn't anyone ever look at his history to see that there were 13 women? And it's not just you, it's Shana Grice. It's, uh, you know, 13 girls before Shana, and yet no one looks at his history. It's Cheryl Gabriel Hooper, whose partner, husband, had broken into her, his ex-wife's house, wearing surgical gloves at knife point, threatens to kill her. And he's charged with a fray, which makes it look like it's something much lesser. And no one asks about his behaviour when she's reporting to police. That's what we're trying to change, that women are not the central point of focus of questioning them, judging them, blaming them. It's about the perpetrator's behaviour and how they learn. And it's exasperating. I've been writing on this for 20 years now. I really thought this time round it would happen. But that's why the fight continues on for both of us. Yeah. And uh, listeners can support us in what we're doing and we've joined forces and, and you're a true warrior, Zoe. So I just want to thank you for being honest. Thank you for being you. Thank you for sharing your story because it will help, mm. I can tell you, thousands of others. I always hear from professionals. I've just had an email from a probation officer saying she listens to everyone in my podcast and it weighs heavy on her decision making. That's the, the change that you can create through telling your story. And I know that you know that, but I want to thank you for your time because I know it's not easy having to rake through it all, but you do it because you want to help other people who might be experiencing similar behaviours. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you for having me. Jumping back in here. Yes, actions, not words. No more lip service. So how can you help? That's what you're wondering, right? Well, take action now. Be an activist. Use your voice to support Zoe and our campaign. Make some noise about it on social media, on IG, and dial me in, at Crime Analyst, and also on Twitter, at The Crime Analyst. Zoe has a strong legal case, and her case has wide-reaching implications, helping thousands of women failed by the police to be acknowledged and get compensation. And more importantly, force a change in attitude and practice from the police who'll finally be held to account. Zoe's GoFundMe is in the show notes, so whatever you can contribute would be amazing. And you can sign our petition for serial domestic abusers and stalkers to be proactively identified and managed, just like sex offenders, and write to your MP if you're in the UK. Again, the link is in the show notes. Next week, I'll be deconstructing a new case with my special guest, Rachel Williams, who was a near-miss to murder. And she's much more than that. You'll hear from Rachel, well, about what happens next week. And so until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. 
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.